This is Booting Up, where we talk to the best in tech about early careers. You'll learn what it takes to get your first job and rise the ranks of the tech world. Now onto the show with host, Rod Dana. Good evening, everyone. It's time for Booting Up. Tonight, we are talking to a guest who is a senior software engineer at Tubi and graduated from Flatiron School in 2013. Along the way, he's had seven different jobs, different companies, all amazing companies, and learned a lot along the way. He's worked on some tough problems and has a lot of knowledge he can share with people that are trying to get into the industry or maybe are in the first years. Uh, also in his spare time, he volunteers on a pro volunteer project to help map COVID cases. So all around, great guy. Uh, before we get into that, if it's your first time joining, definitely subscribe because we're gonna have a lot of interesting guests every single week that you can learn from in your early career. And there's something new you can always learn. So, you know, watch with us every single week. And if you have questions at any time during, during the chat, write them in the live chat. We will get to all your questions. All right. So let's bring on Raymond. Hi. Hi. Good evening, Hi, Raymond. Rod. How's it going? Good to meet you. Good to finally meet you. Where, yeah. where are you coming from? Los Angeles. LA. Is, is that where you're usually at or usually in San Fran? No. No, I've been here for 10 years. 10 years. I, yeah, I don't know. I thought you were in San Fran. Yeah, but uh, LA is the only city that can rival, you know, where I'm at with Miami. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I grew up in Silicon Valley. I'm, I'm from the Bay Area originally. Oh, okay. But, so that makes sense. But I, I like LA. What, what, what originally got you down to LA instead of San Fran? Uh, it's a crazy story, but I used to work in spinal surgery, so I've had four Whoa. different careers. Uh, it's a long story, um, but that's why I came. I was traveling around the country and working in different places like Boston, South Carolina, and I ended up in LA to work on spinal surgeries. I was a neurophysiologist working with orthopedic and brain surgeons and vascular surgeons. Wow. So, yeah. so, so engineering must be easy for you then. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> no, it's hard just like for everyone else. <laughs> I got you. So, so if you were in that, it's definitely, you know, great career, very lucrative also. Uh, so what initially got you saying, Hey, I want to go into tech and, you know, kind of roll in flat iron. Well, so I'm not a typical engineer because I actually, I, first of all, I've already been coding informally. I, I'm self-taught since I was probably 13. So I was a big you know, math nerd growing up, uh, competed in math contests and stuff like that, would read math books for fun. Uh, and so I started teaching myself coding probably 12 or 13. And uh, in Silicon Valley, I grew up in Cupertino, which is where Apple is. Yeah. Um, and, but then when I was 17, you know, a lot of people I knew were trying to go into computer science. At that time, I, believe the negative stereotypes of software people and you know the negative stereotype of being socially awkward not a introverted not able to talk to people and i'm like that's not me i'm extroverted i'm artistic i like english you know i like talking to people so i deliberately said no i don't want to study computer science when i was 17. so it's just like for the stigma basically like like now nah, like i don't want to be yeah. an introvert yeah, yeah, I believe the negative stereotype. I didn't know much about what the software world was like. I didn't know how much it favored extroverts and introverts and, you know, business skills and all these other skills, communication and writing. I had no idea. Um, so I, I didn't do 
software. I became a chemical engineer. That was my degree. And I hated that <laughs> eventually. Um, after That was my degree in college. I went to Berkeley. After that, I became uh, uh, like a, well, it's a long story, but I, I became a, a private tutor teaching high school students, basically rich high school kids, like the kids, like Lori Laughlin's kids, you know, the kind of kids <laughs> who got SATs. Yeah, who got caught up in that college admission scandal. Those are kind of my kids. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> and then I eventually was like, you know, I really hated chemical engineering. Maybe uh, eventually uh, software software will be better. So I, I, actually, wait, let me step back. After chemical engineering, then I took some CS classes in San Jose. Okay. And from there, I instantly got hired. I got hired without a degree. I took a few CS classes. I worked for a consulting firm. I worked for a startup next to Oracle. And I worked for IBM for two years. So and were these jobs like engineering jobs or what? Kind? Yeah, I was. Wow. So in other words, I was already a software engineer before I worked in surgery. Okay. And, and what year is this? So just so we know the timeline. Oh God, it's a long time ago. <laughs> Let's put it that way. It was kind of, it was a long time ago. It was kind of like the time of the, 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 the dot-com crash, you know, okay. at that time. So yeah. And at that time I actually had a terrible experience at IBM. It was very big and impersonal and bureaucratic. Yeah. Uh, and I was really, I got put on a, this project, very old, three-year-old project, uh, not very exciting. Uh, I had to email 10 people every time I did something. So I wasn't, I wasn't very happy. And eventually they told me one day, my boss said, hey, can you teach this guy in India to do your job? And I said, okay, sure, I did. And then they laid me off. What <laughs> but, but actually, I was so unhappy there in that big, slow, bureaucratic environment. I was actually happy to get laid off. But yeah, that, that's one thing. Like everyone's always like hyped about the big companies, but like the bigger you are, the more bureaucracy and like, yeah, it's just it's, sometimes it's not as fulfilling. Exactly. Because you're completely just a number. They don't. They typically don't care about you. You're, it's very impersonal there. Uh, so yeah, and I wouldn't see a human being sometimes for for days or weeks. Oh my god, we yeah, were all we were, we all we were all in our own offices that where we could lock the door. <laughs> and eventually, I just stopped coming to the office because I would never see it. Like no, my boss was down the hall, but he would never actually walk down and see me. It was all communicating by chat. So I'm like, why do I even have to come to the office? So I started working from home. Anyway, it's a long story. The point is, I at that time, I thought software was not for me. I had a bad experience. So I actually decided to leave engineering completely mm -hmm. and decided to go into healthcare. So I went back to community college. I took all the pre-med courses. And I was thinking about med school or PA school, physician assistant school. And then I found this job working in spinal surgery as a neurophysiologist. Wow. So I had already left engineering. I was like, no more engineering for me. Maybe it doesn't fit me. Um, and I'd already been doing, working in surgery. Basically, I worked on over 400 surgeries at over 50 hospitals wow. with over 50 surgeons in seven states. <laughs> That's how I ended up in LA. I was actually traveling around the US, flying around. 
And I worked in, I started at Harvard. I was at like hospitals, five hospitals connected to Harvard Medical School and Tufts. And then I went to South Carolina and then I worked, then I moved to LA and I worked at hospitals over there and I worked in hospitals in Chicago and with, I worked with surgeons from Johns Hopkins and Northwestern and so on, which sounds cooler than it really was. So, so you like kind of people open, like you did like full on surgery. No, no, no. I wasn't a doctor. So I was a, I was a, it basically, I was a security guard for the nervous system. So I was there, basically I was there to prevent paralysis, to prevent nerve damage. Okay. So when, uh, as the surgeon is chopping away, I would, I was monitoring the, the nerve signals, the electric signals, uh, from the sensory and motor pathway, uh, basically I would stick needles into people, into their scalp, upper and lower body, of course, after they were under anesthesia and I would shock them with electricity and make them jump on the table like Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> yeah, it sounds whole, like a war movie. For the whole six hour surgery. It could go up to 13 hours, but typically it was like four to six hour surgery. I would shock, they would be jumping like this unconscious and then I was monitoring their signals on a laptop. I'd be sitting right behind the surgeon. I'd be on a team of six to 10 people. And I was there. To, and as the surgeon is chopping away, he or she, if he got close to the nerve, it would irritate the nerve. It would ping the nerve. And I would see it on my screen. I would say, I would say, hey, uh, you know, doctor, like you're getting too close to left C3. You know, you're irritating this part. So they would know it to step back. Gotcha. So, so that eventually got you to, to LA and then no yeah. happened from there. Uh, I was, so eventually I got really bored because while yes, I was helping people, I was reducing help, reducing their pain from nerve damage. Uh, whenever you in that kind of job where like it can be a life or death situation and it's very critical, mm-hmm. there's no creativity in that job. Yeah. Like if you're a, a pilot, if you're a pilot, if you're a surgeon, if you're an anesthesiologist, there's no creativity because you can't go in and say, Hey, let's try sticking the patient a different way, or let's try a new gas today. Right? Yeah. Everyone follows the same protocol. My job was to make sure the surgery was very boring. If it's boring, then I did my job. <laughs> exactly. It's like being an ans- so I, I just said, that's great. I am helping people one by one but I'm really bored and I miss engineering, I miss math. And I could see a lot of problems in the medical system where you know they use older technology. It's kind of backward, a little bit backward, yeah. it's behind. And I thought, you know, I'd rather step back. I don't wanna be a doctor. I'd ra- I miss engineering, I'd rather work on something. I miss math. I'd rather work on something that can help millions of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then, so in the middle of surgery, in the middle of the operating room, I was actually looking up computer science websites during surgery. So, so are you considering like colleges as well? And no, I thought it was too too expensive and too yeah. too long. Okay. But at that time, so this was in twenty, like 2011, 2012, 2013. Yeah. 20, 2012 was the very first boot camp. Dev boot camp came out in San Francisco, and when I read about that, that blew me away. I thought, oh my gosh, you know. And MIT and also at that time, MIT and Stanford put their 
first year computer science courses online for free. Yeah, MIT OpenCourseWare. Exactly. Been on that one. Yeah, and I'm like, wow, I wish I had this, you know, back when I was trying to learn computer science. Yeah. So, but remember, it had already been a few years since I had done any engineering. I had left completely. So yeah. I had to learn, relearn from scratch. Um, and I basically took the Stanford, I started taking the Stanford course, uh, it, the first year of CS course through YouTube, just checking it out. And surprisingly, after, you know, I wasn't sure how good I was, but the teacher was actually really good and, and funny. He joked around, very good teacher, the professor. And after five days, I was able to finish like half of the, the quarter. Wow. So yeah, printing through it. Yeah, I was like, actually, this is not as hard as I thought, you know, and I was able to like, watch half the lectures, read half of the book and do half of all the homework in five days. I was like, Oh, maybe so, I have a chance. <laughs> so that so, was, was that like too easy? And you're like, Hey, like, let me go to like a more formal program. No, no, it wasn't too easy. I just, it just gave me confidence because after I left IBM, I actually had low confidence. I thought, you know, it just didn't work for me. Something is wrong here. The problem was the first time around I went through software, I didn't have depth. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I was self-taught. I didn't really take a lot of computer science courses at Berkeley because I was a chemical engineer. So mostly yeah. I was teaching myself and I took a few CS courses in San Jose. So I, I was had a very mediocre level of knowledge, but this time around, I was more, the second time around, I was more mature. You know, I, I'd already been through, had some life experience and I was more serious about things. So I was like, oh, actually I'm, I'm not, I'm actually faster than these Stanford students. So yeah. yeah. That, and then go ahead. Sorry. I'll say like that, that's one thing with like, with the bootcamp grads always like you're bringing like other experience. It's not like your first job. And like, when you come into a yeah. boot camp or, or even if you're self-teaching, like you're more serious about it because you're like, hey, like I actually got to make it work. It's not just messing around in college anymore. Also, I'd already tried so many other careers. So I was like, yeah, you also I, was, did, I was steadily eliminating possibilities in my life one by one. <laughs> I, I don't recommend other people follow what I did because it took <laughs> a long time and it was a lot of pain. Um, but yeah, basically I became tougher and um, and then ultimately, uh, also remember at that time while I was doing surgery in the morning, so it was weird. I would get up at 5 a.m., you know, be at the operating room by 6 a.m. and do a six-hour surgery. Then I'd come home, sleep a few hours. 6 p.m. I'd wake up and I was still tutoring high school students. Oh so I, I had up to 20 students a week and I would teach like four more hours at night, like 6 to 10 p.m. And I'd wake up the next day and do the same. So I had two jobs and I was actually making more from teaching than from surgery. What? <laughs> I was like doubling my salary. That's Remember, I, was, I wasn't a doctor, so I wasn't yeah. making like a crazy salary as a neurophysiologist. Um, but uh, yeah, so, and then the reason I got into Ruby was I, um, I, I saw a learning center when I was coming home one day, I was in Hermosa Beach, coming home and I saw this learning center, a new learning center pop up for kids. And it said, you know, teach kids to code. Hmm. And okay. I was like, what's that? That's great. I've never seen that before. So I called up the founder and he, 
he's like, yeah, come over. So I came by the next day and he was basically, do you know Kumon? Kumon is like a, it's like a Korean or Japanese. I can't remember. It's a learning center where they teach kids English and math using worksheets on paper. And this guy was a software engineer and he was teaching kids the Kumon way with paper, teaching them Ruby starting from age five, five to 17. So people, so they're just writing out code and, and they're like little kids writing out code on paper. Well, he first taught them to type. <laughs> so when they were five, they were just doing typing. And, the, and then later he, he had like paper lessons. Yeah. That they would, and then eventually was teaching them JavaScript and Ruby and some other stuff. It was like a whole progression. He's opened a, a, like, I think four more learning centers since then in LA, but that was the very first one. And I, I, I went there and I was really blown away. I was like, wow, this is so cool. You know, I would love to volunteer, but I haven't done engineering for a long time now. I've forgotten everything. He's like, fine, you can volunteer, but you have to learn Ruby. Okay. So that's how there is that need. And then, and yeah, then obviously I know, I know Flatiron teaches Ruby. So, so that's the connection. Well, so then I, at that time I was still working in surgery. I was thinking, how do I make that transition? Right. Do I just quit right away? Cause I really hated, I, I, by that time I was thoroughly sick of what I was doing. Um, I was like, do I want to quit or do I want to learn on the side at night while I do surgery? I wasn't sure. Um, so first thing I did was I did an online program, online boot camp for about a month or two. It was called, uh, it's now called launch school. Okay, and, I've heard of them. Yeah, and I, I liked it because they, so a, a weakness, I, I criticize boot camps a lot because I've seen a lot of pros and cons. Yeah. And the problem with most boot camps, and not just most boot camps, just most education programs in general, formal programs, is that they're on a schedule. That's the, the problem itself, that there's a schedule. The problem with the schedule. Yeah. The problem with the schedule is that everyone learns at their own speed. Okay. So you're only going to hit, and I was a teacher for a long time. So, you know, as a teacher, you tend to, you know, aim for the students in the middle of the skill level, the average student, you aim for that guy, but then the people who are more advanced, you're too slow for them and they get bored, but yeah. the people who are too slow, you're too fast for them. And then they lose, they, they can't keep up. So that's the problem with being on a schedule because everyone has their own speed, right? Some people like me already had a bunch of experience. Some people have no experience. You can't expect everyone to go at the same speed. And um, that's that's why a lot of people who finish boot camps learn very superficially and tend to forget most of what they've learned very quickly because they're just they're just rushed through. They're just on an assembly line. But so, with launch school, they're, they had a kind of a schedule, but it's more, they work, they, their philosophy is what's called mastery based learning. Mm -hmm. So it's learn at your own pace and, you know, you don't move to the next level until you feel you've really mastered that one subject. Yeah. Okay. So I, I see what you're saying now. Cause you know, the other boot camps, it's more, Hey, here's this module. Like you have to do it in this next week. And you know, yeah. I, what I see is a lot of people. They're just doing whatever they have to do to pass that checkpoint or that assignment and yeah. not actually like understanding it. Cause they're always like pressured, especially when they have, you know, full-time job. A lot of people do it with. Sure. Job. Yeah. I, I think 
so if I were going to revolutionize the education system in general, I would, I would, since I was a tutor for eight years and I did mostly one-on-one -on -one tutoring, plus I've taught, I've also taught classes of 30 students. There's a huge difference and nothing beats one-on-one -on -one tutoring or, you know, teaching maybe maximum of two or three people per teacher. That's the ideal case. So what I would do if I were revamping the, the school system in general is just not spend so much money on buildings or physical equipment, just spend it mostly on teacher salaries and just lower the class size, or, uh, make it one to one or one to, to up to three students per teacher. That's it. Make it super small. I'm just and, then, and, then, and then they go at their own pace. I'm just wondering how, how you scale that price-wise. Because if you think about, if you're getting experts and then you're doing one-on-one, -on -one, it's basically like consulting. Um, and then if you're getting true experts, it's going to be expensive to pay consulting rate many hours per day or per sure. week. Sure. Well, that's why you don't spend money on buildings or rent mm -hmm. or equipment, right? People bring their own computers. They don't have to go to a building, especially now. Or if you go to a cafe, you go you go somewhere else, like a public place, like a library, and you go meet there. And then instead of wasting time on doing prepared lectures or giving the same lecture that you've already said a million times over and over and over, it's better to do, I think, the flipped classroom where you've already recorded the lecture in advance, require everyone to watch it beforehand. And then when, when the teacher meets the students, you only do it for one-on-one -on -one tutoring to answer questions. Mm -hmm. and it, then you have the dialogue, you have the discussion. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if you know who Debbie Levitt is. Uh, she's like on the UX side. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I was talking with her also about you know, boot camps, pros and cons. And yeah. what, what she's trying to do is basically set up a curriculum you know, using online resources. So you have YouTube, you have Medium, you have everything. Yeah. So a curriculum through that and then basically have as needed consulting where you, where you would pay an expert to, you know, walk you through questions and clarify questions. And I think, I think that's also like another model, just we have all the information you need online. It's just a matter of getting some clarifying um, help on certain concepts. Well, also, if you think about how, how engineers actually learn at a company, that's how it is. You know, it's, yeah. we, we have, all my teams that I've worked, my software teams that I've worked on have been really, really small from just two people to a maximum of four or five people. That's always been the size of my teams. And so all of our learning is obviously doing stuff ourselves, or talking to our boss or our colleagues. It's always like a one-on-one -on -one or one with two people kind of thing yeah. individually. So it's just replicating that that process at the student level. Let me give you a, a terrible example. So I've talked to a lot of students over the last seven years. I've tried to help a lot of junior engineers and bootcamp grads. And a lot of people, you know, publicly, especially bootcamp grads, they're afraid to criticize their bootcamp publicly mm -hmm. because they have no power. They're probably unemployed. They feel they're at the mercy of their bootcamp, right? For me, I'm not afraid. I don't care what boot camps think about me because <laughs> lots of companies call me every week. So I have, I have power, right? I have negotiation power. Yeah. And a lot of, so for example, Lambda School, I think is a terrible model. You know, I've had a lot of Lambda School students, including 
coaches tell me privately, they won't say it publicly because they're afraid, but privately they've said, look, it's just, look, think about the class size for Lambda School, right? Mm -hmm. They could have 2,000 people in one, in one uh, cohort. They have hundreds of people or, or something like a thousand or yeah, it's this huge amount because it's all, it's all remote. Yeah. It's, it's not even as good as what I had in person at Flatiron school. When I was, I was in Manhattan, I was in, you know, I physically was there and we had 41 people in our physical class, but Lambda school just dilutes the teaching even further by saying, Oh yeah, 2000 people per cohort. Sure. Why not? So, a, a bunch of these people told me they had never even talked to their teacher one-on-one -on -one for months, never even had a conversation with their teacher. So it's basically just, just group lectures and that's it. Like if you're not getting any support. What they do is they have their fellow students become like a coach. The fellow yeah. students who have no experience and are, they're all babies. So it's like babies teaching babies. The, the blind leading the blind. Exactly. And that's what a lot of boot camp uh, camps do to save money or whatever. They 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 often they don't spend the money on the actual senior engineers like me because they can't afford us for one thing. They can't pay this. They can't attract us with their salaries, right? Yeah. They're not going to get people like me to be their teacher. Um, so what they're going to do is they're going to pay new grads who have zero experience who just went through the program just three months before you to teach you. What are you going to get out of that? Yeah. Right. It's, it's a, it's a terrible system. So a lot of people have complained to me from programs like Lambda school and elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I just want to go through some comments real quick. Yeah. So, yeah. Sure. So, so we have a guy who was saying bootcamp's difficult to work with. Um, Nate, went through platform, give you a set of modules. You complete the class when you completed all the modules and you had an yeah. assessment. Yeah. That sounds like what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, Christian, I was able to make more time, but yeah, if you're doing a job, it's too stressful. Then we have a question from Ada. So do you feel that boot camps with part-time schedules that are six to 10 months still create that pressure to learn fast over learning deeply? You see, that's very funny that you say that because you would think that programs like, like Lambda School, and again, I'm not saying, again, I can't generalize about all boot camps. There are a yeah. few that I really like and respect. And if you look at my post uh, on, I have a what's called a boot camp stack where I answer, I put like the top boot camps that I like and I, I answer all these questions. It's on LinkedIn. Um, but you would think that a boot camp that was like eight months long, right, would be necessarily give you more time and more attention. And Lambda School is supposed to be 18 months long, I think. So it's yeah, even bigger. And... Yeah, but I've, I've been really disappointed with the Lambda School students that I've talked to. I, I've really been shocked because even though you know, for them, they tell me that they do not get to data structures and algorithms until month six in the program. And I'm like, what have you been doing for six months? How can you not use data structures and algorithms for the first six months of your boot? You know what I mean? It, you're yeah. supposed to be using it every day. And they're like, oh, no, that's our schedule, you know, month six. And by then you could have finished two other boot camps of three months. So I, I, the, that 
is something is wrong with that system, I, I would highly recommend you to, if you're already in it, I'm sorry, but if you're not, if you're considering it, I would avoid that thing. Uh, uh, yes, I do think, of course, a longer program, if the t if you use the time wisely, will be better, of course, than just another a 12-week program, which is what I went through, mm -hmm. if you use it wisely. But a lot of boot camps, I feel, I feel they just try to cram too much in, so it's like in one ear and out the other. Yeah, so, so Christian was saying that he did a six-month boot camp, and it depends on the teacher, which I, I agree. You know, there's some teachers that um, will just say, hey, that's okay uh, for your work when your work isn't okay, and they don't help you improve. And right. other ones that'll right. like, no, listen, like, you're, you're really messing up here. Like, you, if you do that in the industry, you're not going to get a job. So I think that's also a big thing. Oh, absolutely. Of course, the teacher makes a huge difference. But one of my one of my points, if you read my articles, is that the the most successful students, as well as the most successful engineers, are yeah. the ones who ultimately could have done it without a teacher, without yeah. a formal program. You want to be that kind of person who is so resourceful that even if your teacher sucks, and even if your program sucks, it doesn't bother you. Like you are so hungry and resourceful, you will do anything possible to grab that knowledge and to solve that problem. And that's, by the way, what companies want as well. So I always uh, preach against what I call the university mindset. Mm -hmm. So in other words, so for example, when I was at Flatiron in New York, we had a lot of very smart people, you know, and a lot of people who went to Ivy League schools in that program with master's degrees and so on. Okay. But some of the worst coders in my program actually went to Harvard and Yale. Now, that's not saying anything wrong about those those universities, but what it's saying is that that's think about this. What I always say it's like this: like coding is like learning a foreign language. Mm -hmm. So let's say you want to learn. Arabic or Spanish or whatever, right? And you, you're like, okay, let me go to Harvard. Let's say I got into Harvard and I study Spanish or Chinese or Arabic for three months. And I just take tons of notes, you know, because I'm going to do well on the exam. And I learn all the grammatical rules, you know, and I memorize everything the teacher says. Yet I don't practice speaking or writing regularly for that whole time. Yeah. So am I going to be able to go to a foreign country and, and survive with that? No, nope. right? Or can I get a job working for a newspaper or magazine writing in Chinese or Arabic? No, you see? So that's, that's the problem. I would see these really smart, formally educated students, my classmates, do very well at taking the notes, but that's not how you learn coding. Mm -hmm. You have to be just getting your hands dirty and instantly diving into difficult things right away, even if you don't understand what the hell is going on. That's faster way to learn than, you know, taking lecture notes and learning the grammatical rules, etc. So that that what I that's what I call the university mindset, which is where people think I cannot learn something unless a a a, a wise person a teacher tells me this and makes a nice lecture for me yeah. and gives me homework, Pretty then nice. I can learn it, right? 
that's too slow for the business world. No, definitely. It's a different type of learning, but you know, with, with Flatiron, so you, you came out fine though. And eventually you got your first job working for will I am right? Uh, no, no, I worked in, no, that wasn't my first job. So no, my first job was like, I worked for a, a consulting firm in New York and they okay. were too cheap to hire me. I was like the second person to get a job out of my boot camp. But they were too cheap to hire many engineers in Manhattan to pay New York salaries. So yeah. most of their engineers were actually in Ecuador in South America. So they actually gave me an internship. They hired me for an internship first and paid me almost nothing. They paid me an Ecuadorian salary. <laughs> they, they flew me to Ecuador, South America, to Quito, which is where their office was. And they gave me an apartment, nice apartment. I mean, to, you know, they paid for my rent, they paid for my flight, but they only paid me $200 a week, which is an Ecuadorian salary. The typical Ecuadorian makes like 3000 a year or no, 10,000 a year or something like that. So <laughs> that's what I was getting paid. And it was a consulting firm. We were serving clients in Manhattan and I was supposedly one of the quote, better students in my class. Right. And I was like coming in all cocky. I was like, yes, you know, I did well. I got my job quickly. I was like feeling good about myself. And then the first day, you know, my boss asked me to do all this stuff and I had no idea how to do it. You know, the, the first few weeks I felt horrible because I I'm like, wow, I'm actually like a baby. I know nothing. My boot camp. I thought I was a good student. The stuff my boot camp told me barely scratched the surface of what you actually need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of like they, they tell you about the skills you might use, but in terms of application, like way more use cases come up and like you're not ready for those usually. Yeah, like uh, I was embarrassed because I like he asked me to, you know, make a test in I was coding in Ruby. He asked me to write a test in Minitest. I'd never used Minitest before. In fact, in the whole boot camp, we'd never written any software tests at all. Oh wow. So yeah. And that's by the way, that's still true for most boot camps. That's instantly how I know that you're an amateur. Like if I'm interviewing you, I'll just ask, have you ever written any software tests? And most most juniors will say no. Wow. So that's that's the easiest way I can like reject you. Yeah, Just no, it's some... so important. Like if yeah, if you don't test, then you ship you know, like shit code and then it breaks in the customer and you ruin right? the it's, yeah. it's like, So yeah. you would think that if you were logical, you would think, oh, maybe I should start teaching software testing from day one. Boot camps never do that. They always put it off. They they'll say, Okay, learn it on your own after the boot camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so yeah, so basically I I just realized there was a huge, huge gap between the boot camp, what they taught. It was like I always tell people go graduating from boot camp is like graduating from kindergarten. <laughs> like it it doesn't prepare you even to be a junior engineer. Yeah. Uh so yeah. So uh basically I had to start over and I it's like I knew nothing. And I I would ask my boss who was the CTO, I would ask other engineers for help. But after like a couple months, my boss told me, you know what, 
uh, you're bothering the other engineers with all your questions and you're slowing us down. So, you know, sorry, we can't, I can't answer your questions. Wow. So, so well, they got you down to Ecuador with that yeah. though, and yeah. eventually you made it back to the U S so, so how yeah. that happened? Well, so eventually clearly that job didn't work out Yeah, because, I imagine. <laughs> because there's a huge gap between that was the wrong first job for me. First of all, a junior engineer is the wrong person to hire for a consulting firm because consulting firms will charge startups. So consulting firms, what they do is they build the MVP. They build yeah. the first prototype of a product for a, a new business, right? So you're expecting as a new business, you're expecting as an entrepreneur or whatever, you're, you're, you're expecting to hire people who are experts who've already been senior engineers and architects and have done this for several years for a lot of startups. You mm -hmm. wouldn't hire someone just fresh out of school. Yeah. Why would you pay, you know, a all this money, right? So I was completely the wrong in the wrong place. Um, uh, so yeah, basically, I had a lot of fun. I mean, I got to speak Spanish every day. And you know, I had a lot of adventures in, in South America. But eventually, it didn't work out. I didn't go back to New York. And I was looking for, you know, my boss just said, you know, sorry, that you're, you're not fast enough for us. I'm sorry. Uh, it's not working out. And so I was like, they still flew me back. But I was trying to go back to find a job in LA. So at that time, I knew a guy uh, who was, uh, uh, the, you know, meetup.com. So yeah. I, I was in the biggest, uh, he was leading the biggest Ruby meetup group on meetup.com in Los Angeles. And he was also a recruiter. So I, I messaged him and said, Hey, you know, this is all my experience. I already worked three years here. I did this and this and this. Can you help me find a software job in LA? And you know what he said? He said, um, you know what? Why don't you forget about California and uh, maybe think about looking in Oregon and, or Washington? I was okay. like, what? <laughs> why why, why uh, those two states, not California? He said, you know how many resumes I have from boot camp grads? Uh, He's like, over 100. Uh -huh. And this was six years ago. This was in 2014. Uh, this was when LA had only one boot camp, which was General Assembly. Hmm. After that, LA had had like has over 30 boot camps. Yeah. So my point is even then the the market was starting to get saturated with junior engineers. What when boot camps were first starting out, they were a very novel concept and companies were more open to take a look at their grads. But pretty soon that the junior market got saturated. And so I was like at the kind of in the beginning side of that, maybe, uh, basically I ignored what he said though. I, I didn't listen to him, <laughs> but yeah. what I, but what I realized was that, you know, why didn't things work out with that first company? Right. I really broke it down and I realized that there were six major areas where I was weak that I didn't satisfy what my comp that my boss needed and the company needed. So that's when I wrote that article. If you look at my LinkedIn article, it's called why are coding boot camps weak? I list six things that most boot camps grads don't know. And that was about myself.
That's what I didn't know. I wish I had known going in. Mm. And that's what started me to become critical of boot camps. I'm like, you know, if only my boot camp or everyone, someone had told me months ago, these are the things you also have to do in addition to what the boot camp is telling me. I wouldn't have had such a hard time in, at my consulting firm. So I didn't apply for a job right away because I thought, you know, I have all these gaps and I actually went back home to Silicon Valley and I went to see my parents because <laughs> I'm from there. And I said, hey, mom, uh, I'm only coming back in, but just for a short time. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm not moving back in. <laughs> give him a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, don't worry. I'm not going to stay here, but I... I have these gaps of knowledge I have to fill. So I'm going to study like hell till I fill them. So I, I made my own curriculum for myself and I studied go. for two more months alone. Wow. After Ecuador. And I applied only for a few companies. I, I wasn't focused on applying. I was focusing on those six things. And then after two months, uh, a company, I, I was always planning to go back to LA. I didn't want to work in Silicon Valley or the Bay Area because um, I like the beach and I like Hollywood, blah, blah, blah. I like television. And uh, and then a company, a startup in Hollywood that's actually on Hollywood Boulevard called me and they said, hey, we want to interview you for like a senior engineering job. We'll fly you over here. We'll, we'll put you in the W Hotel, oh, yeah. super fancy hotel on Hollywood Boulevard, you know, I was like, hell yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Even though I knew I wasn't ready for to be a senior engineer yet, I said, okay, sure, why not? Fly me over. And uh, But then I thought, you know, I'm not going to be dumb and only go to LA and interview with one company. I want to interview with a lot on that trip. So that's when I, I started applying for junior engineering jobs, exclusively junior jobs only in LA. And... Uh, as soon as I applied, I instantly had recruiters calling me back. Now, remember, I'm not I'm not the typical engineer, right? Yeah. Compared to other people, because I'd already worked three years in software. I'd already worked at IBM for two years. I, you know, I graduated from Berkeley Engineering School, blah, blah, blah. So I have all this background that most people don't have. That's why people would quickly respond to me and they would think, oh, you worked in three years. You must be a senior engineer, right? Which, of course, was not true. Yeah. But that's why they all called me, you see. And uh, but I, I was like, no, only junior jobs. I don't want to apply for senior jobs. And so I came back to L.A. and I had six interviews lined up six days. Each day was a different company. Each company was a completely different industry. And uh, after that one week, I got two offers. Uh, so so you, it's good that you got that assortment, though. You, you have to, like, see every single aspect. Oh, my God. It was crazy, man. Like, you won't believe, right? So that's a big difference in switching to software. Because before, when I was in, you know, chemical engineering and spinal surgery and, and as, as a teacher, whatever, I was much more limited in the type of company I could work in, the type of industry I could work in, and, and where I could live, what city I could be in, Right. You're, you're restricted to that area. But once I went into software, I realized that everyone wanted to talk to me, every industry, every location, and it just blew my mind. So that one week, I interviewed with uh, Children's Hospital LA. I interviewed with 
a company that made software for nightclubs and bars and restaurants. Uh, I talked to uh, a company that makes like Boingo Wireless that makes Wi-Fi for airports. Mm -hmm. And I talked to uh, a beauty skincare cosmetics company. And I also talked to a company that does credit card processing, but only for porn sites. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Niche. And I got, yeah, you see how diverse each company was? Completely different. And I actually got offers from the last two, the beauty skincare cosmetics company and the, the porn credit card processing company. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I took the, the cosmetics one, and uh, okay. which is Guthy Ranker. And uh, basically, um, uh, Cindy Crawford actually had an, uh, the supermodel Cindy Crawford had an office on the floor right above me. Oh, yeah. Well, you're, you're in Hollywood, so I feel like everyone just mixed in there. Well, I was in Santa Monica. Yeah. Santa Monica, okay. Yeah. So that's how I started. It's a long story, but but cut it short. After I worked for that, that was like an interesting way to. Sorry, I, I'm talking too much, but uh, <laughs> I, I can keep going. But more questions you have? Yeah. Well, so so, so what I saw that you did a, eventually start working working for Will I Am, right? Right. So after I. So that so the first company was interesting because that was my first software job in LA, yeah. and Guthy Ranker. If, if you guys know about Guthy Ranker, it's they make Proactive, which is the acne cream. You know that they've the yeah. company has been around for like thirty five years. It's an old slow bureaucratic company, and they do a lot of you know infomercials on TV late at night. Rodan and Fields. I don't know if you've seen. Do you know what I'm talking about? The, the proactive. I, I know proactive for sure. Okay, yeah, that's their yeah. that's our product. But I, they, I was they, a teenager. <laughs> okay, okay, but and then Sydney Crawford, she has a a line called Meaningful Beauty. They have all these like skincare lines and stuff. Yeah. Um, so the thing with this company, very slow, old fashioned, and bureaucratic. Uh, back to it. But and they had cubicles, you know, and they had. You know, like I wouldn't know who was on the floor. I would every day, I would every week, I would meet people and be like, Who are you? Like, I've never seen you before. It's like very impersonal, big company. Um, and I remember to get my GitHub access, get access to my accounts, took three days. And we had a landline, we had a phone on a desk. Remember those? <laughs> and to get that, it took a week. That's how slow the company was. And I've been I, one of those. yeah, right. But the thing is, it was actually a good that I started off that way and that I didn't try to go to another startup. And I always tell new grads, it's actually good to first start off in a big, slow, bureaucratic old company like this. Because mm -hmm. you have uh, time to learn. Exactly. Because you saw what happened at my first company, right? The, the small yeah. startup. Everything was much faster. The expectations yeah. were higher. You know, it's there's much less room to to grow, and no one has time to help you. But going to this slow bureaucratic company, it let me have a chance to slowly grow. Because every new, uh, every junior person is going to be extremely slow compared to the rest of the team. Mm -hmm. And at a big company, you have a little bit of room to to be slow, and you'll be okay. But at a at a small startup, at, at a normal startup, um, 
they give they typically give you one month to be as fast as the rest of the team and if yeah. you're not that fast enough you're fired yeah it's it's cut it's cutthroat yeah you have to learn like 10 times faster so it's, exactly anyway yeah it's like if you want to if you want to be really involved in actual output it's good but yeah does it I, I agree with the first job you want it to be a little bit more laid back right so anyway so basically i did that first job for like about a year and uh i thought okay it was very relaxing and it was like 10 to 5. i had lots of free time i even was teaching on the side at night and so on uh but i realized you know i can't stay in this job right it's a good starting job when you're a junior person mm -hmm. but if you stay in this job you'll get typecast yeah you'll get stuck in as a big slow bureaucratic person and startups uh, faster companies wouldn't want to hire you later on so after about a year i i left and eventually it's a long story but eventually i got hired uh, by by will i am's startup so that was in hollywood it was called i am plus and um you know the popster will i am he's the founder of the black eyed peas and uh very cool guy i would meet him every week he would come <laughs> by he'd, he'd fist bump me and he'd say you know it's dope man he'd like talk like this <laughs> yeah yeah and and his startup uh was trying to build a, a smartwatch from scratch i remember that yeah so uh yeah i was one of the main engineers there i became eventually a senior engineer on the back end um, I was hired as a senior engineer and that was an interesting story because, um, I, you know, I was still very, a junior senior engineer, right? I still, it had been only a year and a half after my, after my boot camp, but I, I had no choice. It's like when, when you leave your job in LA, there weren't there, first of all, in general, there aren't a lot of junior engineering jobs, right? Most companies don't yeah. want to hire junior. They uh, only want to hire mid-level or senior. So I had no choice but to move up. I had to try to jump to senior level as soon as possible. So, so what, what was the difference like in terms of your work versus being a junior versus senior? What was like the biggest thing? Uh, just, you have to be a lot faster, a lot smarter, you know, more responsibility just it's more unforgiving you know they expect okay. you to just yeah to be able to be very independent and it was hard like i i didn't succeed right away you know there are a lot of i made a lot i had a lot of trial and error i made yeah. a lot of mistakes and got a lot of rejections initially but um eventually i got hired at that company and at, at will i am's company and i one reason i picked it was because that startup we had about 150 people, 120 people. One reason I picked it was because not only do we have our, the head of engineering who's my boss, really smart guy, um, but then we had two other senior Ruby engineers. Yeah. And I was hired as the senior Ruby guy. And I thought, oh, cool. If I have any questions, I can ask any of these three people, right? But guess what? Unexpected always happens in business. And uh, after I was there less than two weeks, um, the, the I, I, okay, my boss put me, had me work with the most senior engineer at the company, uh, Ruby engineer, senior Ruby engineer at the company. He was the main Ruby expert at the company, okay? 
and I was helping him work on our main backend APIs. Uh, and then after I was there less than two weeks, I come into work one day and my boss is like, oh, um, that guy's gone. He's like, uh, basically he had fired him. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, whoa what just happened? I just started working here. Yeah, and, been a red, red flag kind of. <laughs> and the thing was, it wasn't because of his technical skills. He was, again, the main Ruby expert at the company. The problem was he didn't get along with my boss. You know, they, they had been arguing for months. Like, I didn't know any of this coming in, right? Yeah. And he also wanted to work alone. He wanted to work at home. My boss wanted everyone to be there in the office. He didn't want to collaborate. He also didn't want to answer my questions, blah, blah, blah. So it was those kind of personal things that got him fired. Okay. Wasn't his technical skill, but then I was in shock <laughs> and my boss tells me, Hey, guess what, Raymond? Uh, now you have to be the main Ruby expert at our company. You're sh and, into leadership. Yeah. And, uh, you know, also he told me, I noticed that you've been kind of slow, uh, the first two weeks. Um, oh boy. yeah, but like you can only be slow for the first month. And after that you have to be fast. And I knew, I knew what he meant. <laughs> so I worked my ass off and, um, and also I couldn't rely on the other, I had a, there was the other senior engineer that I told you about, but he wasn't helpful at all. Like whenever I would get stuck, I would have an error message or something. I would say, Hey, can you take a look at this problem I have? I can't solve it. He would come walk the other engineer, senior guy would walk over, look at my screen for like five seconds. And then he'd shake his head and say, sorry, <laughs> I don't know. And he'd walk away. Yeah, so I, I, I only could ask my boss for help. That was it. No, but that's, that's tough. I, yeah. You, you need to have that mentorship, especially in the early roles. But, um, but I was lucky. The, the point is I managed to, I worked my ass off. I managed to survive there and I was able to like help build that main API alone with just me and my boss, my boss for help. And then we released the, the product or watch in Europe. Yeah, so. no, I, I, and I definitely got released eventually. Um, I, I had a bunch more questions, but I want yeah, to yeah, sure, speak sure. to everyone in the comments. Yeah. So let's go through all, all these yeah. uh, kind of quickly. So starting yeah. with Rudolph. So he says he's been a big, big follower of you on LinkedIn. And what yeah. are your recommendations for best preparing for technical interviews? Yeah, no, that's a great uh, question. Hmm. I would say, so, uh, I know a lot of engineers like to complain about interviewing because they'll say, you know, the skills that they asked you there are maybe unrelated to what you actually need for your job. Unfortunately, to survive in the software world, you have to be good at both types of skills, the skills that we need every day for our job, which are not, you know, doing lead code problems. We don't do that at work Yeah. and all that lead code stuff that you need for the interview, the whole interview routine. We have to be good at both sets of skills, unfortunately. So I would say, you know, do the things that everyone tells you, you know, do you need to do a bunch of lead code type of problems, data structures and algorithms, but also learn, you know, fundamental computer science, really try to learn, uh, be an expert in your main language whatever it is that you sell yourself as, 
many people get rejected because of that. Um, also have stories to tell. Uh, many people also get rejected because they're bad storytellers. They're not good at giving concrete examples uh, to prove, to, to show and not tell, right? Like we, when we interview you and we say, you know, and you say, oh, I know JavaScript or I'm hardworking, that doesn't mean anything to us. Tell me a, a concrete story or give me a concrete example of a time where you did that, where you showed that. And many people are, are bad at that. So I really recommend, oh gosh, there's this woman, what's her name, Madeline something. She's called the Madeline Mann, yeah. The self-made millennial, Madeline okay. Mann, M-A-N-N. -N. I highly recommend her, um, her YouTube channel and just all her videos. She does really practical advice for software in, or interviews in general, not software, just interviews in general and how recruiters think. Um, but it depends what kind of job. I assume Rudolph, you're like a junior. I assume he's like a junior engineer. Yeah. Um, I would say, so do the standard lead code, you know, dozens of problems like that. Do, you know, you need to look, basically follow the advice I give in my, I have five LinkedIn articles. If you look in my about section on LinkedIn, I have a ton of, I've been asked this question many times about how to stand out from, because you have to remember, it's not as easy as the bootcamp tells you, companies only hire less than 1% of all software applicants. You have to imagine you're competing at least against 200 other people for that one job, okay? So how do you show you're better than 200 other people? You have to do something outstanding. You have to show somehow, somehow you're you're deeper, you know more, you, you're one level deeper than everyone else. And that means it could be things like, you know, doing doing 50 lead code problems, right? How yeah. many people do 50? Just do 50. How many? Very few. It could be things like doing uh, working on a popular open source project that has thousands of, of stars and fixing a bug or adding a feature to it. Don't just do student projects. I, I keep telling people, stop just doing student projects because the problem with student projects, no customers. And yeah. companies don't care that much. Like they care that you've worked on code that actually has customers. So how, how can you have customers if you don't have a job? Open source. Sure. Very so true. that uh, I think become an expert in the language that you say you're you're good at, meaning read a book and code through the entire book from scratch. Uh, also practice speaking and explaining technical concepts in, in very specific detail. Practice telling stories about or having examples ready to go to illustrate specific points. Um, and also if you make projects or you do open source or or you give examples. Also do a lot of research on that company and, and, you know, try to be really relevant to their industry as much as you can. Yeah. Um, so for example, you could also go, each company typically has a GitHub page, right? Yeah. And they typically already have open source projects and libraries. Why not go look at their code for the actual company and actually fix bugs and add, add features to that code and submit it as a pull request. Mm-hmm.
Yeah. So, so, so let me, let me just cut in there, Raymond. So, so yeah, we, got, we got a bunch more. Know. Let's do 30 seconds or less for everyone else coming up. Okay. Sorry. Go All ahead. Good. All right. So let's see. Ada said, I've heard the boot camps are focused more on the career track. Do you have any insight on how efficient the career tracks are and are they worth the boot camp? Uh, I don't know what you mean by career track. So like the career program, they kind of do mock interviews and resume stuff. And she also some background. She got into Flatiron, but she's on the fence. The part-time program. I mean, I think unfortunately most boot camps, including Flatiron, are kind of mediocre. So you can kind of the the best thing I got out of Flatiron was just discipline of coding seven days a week or coding almost every day. Did I really need Flatiron? Not really. Like I barely used anything I learned from Flatiron. I mean, was it a nice head start? So in other words, if you can afford it, if you have the money saved up and you have the time, sure, why not? But again, like I said, it's just like graduating from kindergarten. Companies yeah. don't respect that. They don't, they don't really respect that you went to that boot camp. You have to do something outside the boot camp that's special. So yeah, and then in terms of career track, in terms of interview practice, I guess that's nice, but, but you can do that for free. You don't have yeah. to go to a boot camp, right? You can use PRAMP, P-R-A-M-P. Uh, there's, I can't remember, interviewing.io. There are a bunch of sites yeah. where you where you can have like engineers from FANG companies interview you anonymously for free. Or of course, you could, pra you could just watch those videos on YouTube of the full interview, or you could go to careercup.com, you know? There's a bunch of other places you can do for much cheaper to get interview practice. Resume, I have a lot of advice on resumes. Um, I think there's a guy at at uh, Uber Uber Manager, Gurgly Oros, who wrote a great book on uh, for engineers um, on how to write a technical resume. All right, good stuff. So now, yeah, next question is from John. Uh... Talking about every company seems to only want to hire mid slash senior level devs. It seems yeah. like nobody hires juniors. In your opinion, what's the missing link to get these bootcamp grads to fill these roles? So what I always say is um, don't act or think like a junior engineer. Yeah. Like try to get out of the junior world as soon as possible. I always tell people um, you're you're like a spy, okay? Imagine that you're trying to be a spy in France, okay? How do you convincingly prove that you grew up in France, right? Even though you really didn't. That's basically what you're doing. You're going into a new culture, which is the software world. Yes, we know we're not dumb. We know that you're new. We know that you're junior. But if you don't act or talk or think or code like a junior person, we will forget that, you see? You have to be like a spy. And in other words, try not try to not have an accent, sort of. Be like, a, be like a native. So what does that mean? That means like even really small things will tip will tip us off if I'm interviewing you. For example, I'm a Ruby, I was a Ruby senior Ruby guy before. And if you give me a Ruby program where the code is indented four spaces. I will instantly know, oh, you have no experience in Ruby. Why? Because all Ruby programs are indented two spaces. So if you had any experience, you would know that. I mean, that's a very minor thing, yeah. but it's like, it's like going to the interview with your shoes untied, right? Like 
someone would instantly see, oh, something is wrong with this guy. He doesn't fit, you see? So you wanna minimize that as much as possible, which means that you need to study senior engineers like us and think, okay, what tools do we use, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of like Postman or VS Code or Unix tools, whatever, GitHub, all those tools, learn those tools well and be fluent in them. Learn the language well and be able to talk about it fluently like you're a native, right? Um, how Learn software design, um, be able to talk and think, write software tests and, and be able to talk the lingo, the slang. And, and, and so those kind of things stylistically copy us senior folks as much as possible. Yeah. And, and, and that way we're interviewing you and we will forget that you're a junior person. You see, and we'll think, yeah, this person, I can really see this person on our team. I can see a fit. And most people don't do that. You see, they come off like a, like a foreigner, very obvious. Yeah. Identity. So that's, that's uh, what I'd say. Oh, no, go, go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and then the other thing is um, also be able to think, uh, to be more mature, again, to give the impression that you're a more mature engineer, try to think like an engineering manager, try to think like a CEO, like a business person as well. I've always, I'll give an example. I once interviewed with a wine startup, okay, in LA, and I know nothing about wine. I actually barely drink like much wine at all because I find it the taste too bitter. Yeah. Um, but when I interviewed with the CTO and the, the lead engineer, most of the interview, I was not talking about code. I was just talking about wine. Mm -hmm. I was talking about the business of wine and I turned my ignorance into an asset. Okay. So even if I knew nothing about wine, I was like, look, uh, I've looked at some of your competitors and I'm not a big wine drinker and I know nothing about wine. Uh, I noticed that, you know, your competitor here in the UK, you know, they give like a survey, a, a flavor taste survey for their users. Yeah. And I noticed you guys don't do that. So is there a plan? Do you guys have a plan to do that? And they're like, oh my God, how did you know that? That's actually, we just talked about it last week in our meeting. You see, do you have, and I was like, do you have any plan for like machine learning to do, you, you see what I mean? I was thinking like a business person, like an investor in their company. Or, or as a potential customer, I was like, these are things that are missing. These are why I, as, a, as an ignorant person, customer would not buy wine. How can you attract me to be your customer? And I, I came up with this little list and I was like, what about this and this? And they're like, oh my God, these are all things like we were just talking about. How did you know us so well? And then they offered me the job. Yeah. So you see Maybe most- most it was an interview. Yeah, most people don't do that. They just come in as an engineer, strictly the technical. They they repeat the same pitch to every company. They don't think from the business view as well. Yeah. So just on a, a comment, not not a question. So the right there saying, well, I'm feeling quite overwhelmed with, the, with this episode. I'm feeling like I learned nowhere near enough. Um, and then he was followed up with, so is it safe to say there's pretty much not a lot of mentorship when it comes to the junior level? Uh. Yeah, mentorship is, is, there are different ways to get mentorship. I think uh, maybe, okay, I think, okay, one great way to get mentorship, uh, which most people never do, is to do open source 
work on popular open source projects. Yeah. And it's very it's easy to say but very hard to do. And and it's but it's totally free, right? But most people are intimidated. They're scared of it. But this is why I keep pushing it so much because doing if you so think about any package or program that you use, right? Let's say it's a jest, right? Or yarn or something like that in JavaScript, right? Whatever it is, a library that you typically use all the time. It has tens of thousands of stars, right? Hundreds of thousands of people are using it around the world. Imagine if you go in there, download the source code for yarn or jest, right? Or mocha or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And you and there's a whole list of bugs and their whole list of issues that needs to get fixed. And you actually fix your issue for them. And you actually submit a PR, a pull request and get it merged in. What's going to be better experience in an interview and on a resume? Your your that that uh, that boring crud project that you made at your boot camp where you have zero customers or telling people, hey, I fixed a bug in yarn or i fixed a bug in jest which has hundreds of thousands of users see which is better so if you do that and, and you submit a pull request maybe of course they might reject your pull request right whoever's running that project but they will give you comments they will say okay thank you for your pr but uh here are some problems with it you know fix this fix this write a test for this have you thought of doing this instead? So that means senior engineers, top engineers at some major companies will be teaching you for free how to code better. That's the benefit of doing open source, you see? Instead of doing another student project that nobody uses. Yeah. I, I would do that. So that's one way to get mentorship for free. Another way is, of course, you could pay, like there are all these programs like Thinkful, where you can get like you just meet with a mentor once a week and you pay like 200 bucks a month. There, there are programs like that where you could get professional people to help you. Um, but then in terms of getting mentorship, let, let's say once you've gotten hired, you finally gotten a job, then that's a total hit, hit or miss thing, right? Yeah, that's uh, it's, a situation it, to get into. Most companies don't want to teach you, but so you have to really be careful um, the company that you pick and try to find a company where the boss also likes to teach and you have colleagues who also want to teach. That's the ideal case. Um, but it's, yeah, you're right. Most companies don't want to teach because they're losing money on you for the first few months. Yeah. And it's expensive. So, so you either have to teach yourself, uh, you know, follow some of the articles that I wrote, some of the advice that I give do open source projects, work together with each other. Maybe another thing is uh, some people I've known is you can approach a local business, let's say like a restaurant, a doctor's office, right? Maybe a friend of yours, whatever. And you see that their website sucks, right? You see that it's a small business, but their, their mobile app or their website is actually terrible. Yeah. And you, you approach the guy directly and say, Hey, let me just make a deal. Let me let me fix it up for you. That's a way to learn. Mm -hmm. yeah, but, so, but, you, but you have no mentor, though. That's the problem. Yeah, it's the toughest thing is getting those people to teach you and mentor you. But you know, oh, it's it's a problem that definitely 
is something to be solved. So we'll see what else comes out. Uh, but to, to end, you know, the but, night. But the, the point is, you need to hustle. Yeah, you have to hustle, no matter what. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then, I, on, a, on a fun question. So yeah, yeah. What What is your favorite book? Uh, so you, you can go first on this. My favorite. I assume it's like a software book. I'm, I'm uh, just anything self help. Oh, anything not software. Um, I don't know. I mean, I have too many books, but I would say, let's say, let's starting with a software book. Um, I think I really, really, I always recommend um, the design book called Pooter Practical Object Oriented Design in Ruby. Even though, even if you're not a Ruby developer, it's the book that really started teaching me the principles of good design because boot camps never teach you this. They never teach you how to write a good class, a method, how to decouple your objects from each other, uh, you know, things like that. They never teach you uh, about dependency injection, uh, composition over inheritance. They may say these concepts, but they don't give you, they don't really dig into it and show you examples of this is good style, this is bad style, you see? And if you read that book, Pooter, P-O-O-D-R, even if you're not a Ruby developer, it took me five days to read 200 something pages. It's possible to do it in a week. So I highly recommend that book. It taught me so much that you use every day. Uh, and then a non-book, a non-book, like a technical book. I mean, you know, a book that really changed my life was um, uh, Dale Carnegie's book, like uh, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. Yep, I, I have that next to my bed right now. <laughs> I used to be a lot more worried when I was in college and stressed out. But after that book, because it has it's full of examples of people, you know, who were like a guy who was in he was like a prisoner of war during World War Two, things like that. Basically, it made me a lot more stoic. And, uh, you know, I just you just basically I, I just stopped worrying a lot and, and stress doesn't bother me as much. So yeah yeah and then for, for me on favorite book oh, uh, oh another thing another thing for software yeah. people i highly recommend the book uh, deep work, deep work Cal, Cal Cal you know that book yeah, yeah. That. i've heard a lot of good things about that one yeah and how on how to focus and avoid distraction because that's what we really need in this this knowledge intensive job yeah stay, stay off the internet <laughs> Yeah, for me yeah. On, on a good book, uh, the book Not Nice. So that actually helped out a lot in my life. And it mo mostly focuses, you know, not about be being a dick, but basically, <laughs> basically kind of just like being yourself and not determining what people can handle. Uh, so it, it definitely will help you stand out, especially in interviews where, you know, everyone's trying to play a part. And then if you're just your yourself, that, that'll really help you out and, you know, showing out and making a good impression. So... Oh yeah, that's another thing. Like, um, I tend to joke around a lot in interviews and uh, showing a sense of humor, eye contact, personality, showing that you have other interests besides tech. All of that makes a difference because people yeah. want to say they want to see that you're a cool person and fun to hang out with. Mm -hmm. They're gonna work with you. They have to know, like, yeah, mm -hmm. this person cool. Yeah. So, yeah. Once I got a, I once I got an offer, and it's weird. Like. I interviewed with a startup in Santa Monica and at the very end, even before I left the office, they told me, okay, you've got the job. They verbally offered me the job. And they yeah. said, the last guy we interviewed with, he didn't uh, look us in the eye. <laughs> I 
something simple as that exactly and i was like wow the bar was that low <laughs> yeah but so, yeah. uh so thank you for everyone that joined us tonight uh, i know we went a little bit over our usual time yeah. but there was definitely a lot to cover i uh, hope everyone learned something new i know i learned a, a bunch and if you don't or if you're not already connected with raymond find them on linkedin like you said he has yeah. all posts i believe they're all featured on your profile so He's yeah, like, just yeah, just go to my about section in my LinkedIn profile. I've already kind of summarized all my articles and posts there. Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely go through that. A lot of good information and could kind of go deeper into some of the things he mentioned tonight. Um, but otherwise, I hope thank you, Raymond, so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, and hope my everyone pleasure. else will join us next week with our next guest on Booting Up. Have my pleasure. Time. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck to everyone.